Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me today. Hope your weekend is going well. A lot to discuss, as always. I'm looking forward to taking your calls. Let me start today by just playing a clip from this morning from Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, where he, unlike Biden, who he's very close with, would not take U.S. forces off the table and, in fact, appeared to suggest that he favors sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. This is what he said. He was speaking on Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. In some public remarks this week, you said um, the country needs to talk about when it might be willing to send troops to Ukraine. You said if the answer is never, then we are inviting another level of escalation and brutality by Putin. Are you arguing that President Biden Margaret. was wrong when he said he would not send troops? In some public remarks this week, you said to Ukraine, you said if the answer is never, then we are inviting another level of escalation and brutality by Putin. Are you arguing that President Biden Margaret. was wrong when he said he would not send troops to Ukraine? Are you asking him to set a red line? Margaret, I think those of us in Congress who have a critical role in setting foreign policy uh, and in advising uh, the president in terms of his decisions as commander in chief uh, need to look clearly uh, at the level of brutality. This is a moment of enormous challenge for all of us. Uh, and I deeply respect President Biden's leadership in pulling together the West in imposing crushing sanctions uh, on Russia and in bringing to this fight countries that had stayed on the sidelines before. I think President Biden's leadership has been steady and constructive, but this is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes uh, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, great, I, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm -hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. I'll close with this, Margaret. This is a weekend when so many families gather to celebrate yes. the very best in the human spirit um, and where we grieve the loss of many due to COVID. We should also be prayerful and mindful of those who are fighting for freedom in Ukraine uh, and how yes. much their heroism and patriotism inspires the rest of us. So that's Chris Coons. And you heard what he said there. He said, I, I worry that Putin will, will continue until we stop him. And I took that to mean, given that this was in response to a question about sending U.S. troops, that Coons favors sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. And of course, you know, Coons is worth many millions of dollars. Him and his family are not going to be asked to shoulder that sacrifice. It will be other families who will be sent off to fight in Ukraine if people like Coons and there are many others in Washington get their way. When he says that I worry that what's going to happen next is that we'll see Ukraine turn into Syria, that's a fair concern. But I think the concern comes from U.S. policy. Just like Syria, the U.S. is flooding a war zone with billions of dollars worth of weapons. It's overlooking and, in fact, encouraging uh, extremists coming from around the world to fight on the side that it supports. In Ukraine, it's the Ukrainian government. And in Syria, it was the insurgents that were dominated by al-Qaeda and other sectarian death squads that, as Joe Biden admitted, and many other Obama administration 
and many other Obama administration officials admitted, were the ones dominating the insurgency. And, you know, most dangerously, it's again, like in Syria, putting the U.S. on the opposing side of a proxy war with Russia and threatening, once again, direct military confrontation, which Chris Coons seems to favor. So the analogy here to Syria is very apt, although not for the reasons that I think Chris Coons intends. And meanwhile, Zelensky continues to make the rounds of every U.S. media outlet. Today, CNN had a really funny promo where they said that they had an exclusive interview with Zelensky. Well, I don't know what they meant by that. Maybe exclusive interview in like the 9 a.m. time slot because Zelensky seems to be only doing media interviews around the clock. I'm not sure what else he's doing. doesn't seem like he's leading his country in any other way except just going on TV and uh, having media opportunities. And so I wanted to talk about him a bit today, and I'm curious to hear what thoughts you have. Um, of course, you know, the portrayal of him in the U.S. media is he is the next Churchill. He is a hero. I have a much different view. And I actually wrote an article this week uh, on my Substack, which which is linked to in the show notes for this episode, which everyone can read. It's not locked anymore. And basically about how Zelensky abandoned his mandate, which was in 2019 being elected with 70% of the vote on a platform of making peace, of ending the war in the Donbass. And instead, Zelensky has essentially sided with the far right of Ukraine. And what I argue in the article is that, you know, he's done this because the U.S. has not had his back. That was a warning that Stephen F. Cohen, the late Russia scholar, said to me in 2019, just after Zelensky was elected, that unless the U.S. has Zelensky's back, he will not be able to stand up to the far right in Ukraine, who will try everything, that every means that they have, to sabotage peace, including threatening Zelensky's life. And that's what happened. But one thing I didn't mention in my article, and I'm curious people's thoughts is, was Zelensky ever really serious about peace all along? Was he really sure he ran on that? And yes, you know, I I can point to, and I have in my article a few examples of him trying to implement um, a peace mandate. He goes to the Donbass, he meets with the Azov Battalion, asks them to pull back. They basically tell him to go away. He has a spokesperson sort of apologize for the way people in the Donbass have been treated. The Russian-speaking people have been treated. Um, And in response to that, he faced threats on his life from the far right. But at the same time, he was funded by an oligarch inside Ukraine who also funded the Azov Battalion. And when he was elected, the Azov Battalion actually gave him some support. So if Zelensky was ever serious about making peace with Russia... Would he have been funded by the funder of the Azov Battalion? And would the Azov Battalion have backed him? I'm not so so sure about that. So that's why I titled this this, uh, episode today, Zelensky, uh, Hero, uh, Victim, or or Fraud, or or Puppet. Because he sort of, I think, it's hard to pin down what exactly he is, whether... The sabotaging of his peace mandate was not his fault or whether he willingly played along and whether I think it's fair to question whether he's ever actually ever serious about making peace. Although, again, in his defense, had he tried to make peace with Russia, with the Russian speaking rebels in the east, he did face very serious threats in his life. And he did face the threat of overthrow, which is something we know that the Ukraine far right can do because they did that in 2014 with the backing of the U.S. And we also know this. uh, This emerged a few weeks ago when he said on CNN that he basically played along with a ruse concocted by the U S and NATO. And that ruse was that publicly 
the U.S. was going to leave the door open to Ukraine joining NATO. But privately, they told him, you're never going to join. So basically, Zelensky, when he had the choice to pledge neutrality for Ukraine and pledge not to join NATO, which he knew he was not going to get anyway, according to what NATO told him, what he says NATO told him, he decided to publicly, basically, uh, refuse that option just so he could maintain the theoretical right of Ukraine joining NATO, which he knew it would never join. This is what he said on CNN back in March. Requested them personally to, t- to say directly that we are going to accept you into NATO or NATO in a year or two or five. To say it directly and clearly or just say no. And the response was very clear. You are not going to be a NATO EU member, but publicly the doors will remain open. So that's Zelensky speaking through a translator on CNN in March. And he admits that he was told that you're not going to join NATO, but publicly we're going to use the possibility of you joining NATO uh, to basically bait Russia. That's the point of leaving the door open publicly, something that privately you say you'll never fulfill. And he played along with that. Why didn't he call that out? Why didn't he say, hey, we're not going to – I was just told that we're not going to join NATO anyway, so I might as well commit to neutrality. Because why else would I want to risk a Russian invasion on my country? But he didn't. And I think the reasons why he didn't do that are worth interrogating. And perhaps they go beyond just fears on his life. Perhaps this with Zelensky, there's something a lot more cynical going on. So those are my opening thoughts. And we will take some calls. Nasser, you are up first. And remember, everybody, when you come in, there's a microphone button in the bottom right of your screen. And you click that to unmute yourself. So Nasser, you are up first. Yes, thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, I've been actually, so now we have like, now it's like two months almost into the war. And uh, I have, I have, I have read quite a bit. I just started actually uh, Richard uh, Sakwa's book, uh, uh-huh. f- f- uh I mean, in my opinion, I think Zelensky did not have or doesn't have the political and, and the strategic intellect to kind of like to make peace. He, he, he never had that and he doesn't have it. So how, uh, you know, and, and second that, you know, based on the, the videotapes and evidence we have, you know, that uh, the United States, uh, you know, kind of like uh, after the, the Maidan coup, basically, you know, they chose the government. So how could the United States allow a person like Zelensky, who never had any background, to come and just make peace, you know, with Russia, without any, any, you know, without uh, kind of like uh, uh, interacting or communicating, you know, with the United States that, oh, well, you know, I want to make peace, you know, where we now know that the United States has never had um, the interest to make peace, actually. Yes. And you know what? And this brings up something I didn't mention, but it's really, really important. As soon as Joe Biden took office, Zelensky's government immediately calibrated its policies toward Russia to basically meet the U.S. line. And in fact, Zelensky, right after Biden took office in early, two, two, in early 2021, uh, he, he, uh, he carried out what a aide to Zelensky uh, named Alexander Danliuk called a welcome gift to the Biden administration. And that welcome gift 
in this Zelensky aide's words, was shutting down three pro-Russian opposition television networks that were very critical of basically the current war in the Donbass. They were essentially not going along with the far right line. So Zelensky shut those television networks down. The U.S. embassy applauded the move, which is odd because we're supposed to believe that Ukraine is a shining democracy, and that's why we're intervening to defend it. And this was done to please the Biden administration to, again, I'll just quote Don Leuk here. He says this was calculated to fit in with the U.S. agenda. So that's an early sign from the start of, of Biden's term that Zelensky was playing ball with whatever the U.S. wanted. And that was, in this case, provoking Russia, shutting down three pro-opposition television networks and silencing dissent toward the line favored by the far right. So that's a pretty clear sign that Zelensky from the start was playing along with Washington rather than trying to uh, chart his own course. I, I Yes, I agree with this line of thought because if you see it from one aspect, okay, uh, they need to like play double game. Like, you know, one at the front, you know, you know, we want peace, but at the same time, back, you know, back, back door, back door kind of like uh, conspiracy and machination is that, you know, that we don't want peace. We just talk about it, you know, but we really don't want peace. But yeah. so, but they need a person like, like they need a figurehead to kind of like do that job for them, you know, yep. that they want peace. Yep. Yep. Thank yep. you. Nasir, thanks for the call. Sam, you are up. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yeah, hi. How's it going, man? Um, so to answer your point about why he didn't declare neutrality, I kind of feel like it's a – if he did, it's kind of the, the notion of, well, you saw what we did to the previous guy. So I think if he had done it, maybe he'd been in office another year and a half before suddenly, uh, you know, another group of people need to oust him for a person who's going to play along. You know, I mean, we, we can't forget Newland – literally on audio saying we're picking who the next person is. Mm-hmm. So I feel like he kind of knows where he's at. He's not somebody who has real power. It's just temporary. If he doesn't play ball, whether it's the U S or the far right, the guy's going to be outed. But yeah, look, yeah, that's no, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, look, two weeks before the, the, uh, the Russian invasion, the New York times said that Zelensky quote, would be taking extreme political risks even to entertain a peace deal with Russia. And his government, quote, could be rocked and possibly overthrown by far-right groups if he agrees to a peace deal that, in their minds, gives too much to Moscow. And there's a a far-right group called the Democratic Axe in Ukraine. And its leader, Yuri Hodimenko, said this again. This is in February right before the invasion. He said, if anybody from the Ukrainian government tries to sign such a document, a peace deal, he means, a million people will take to the streets and that government will cease being the government. So, you know, in his defense, he did face these constant threats. He did. Um, and from everybody, not, not just the U.S., probably behind the scenes, but also, you know, uh, more immediately from Ukrainian far-right groups. And what I point out in my new article is that, you know, the only force that could have been a counterbalance to the Ukrainian far right is the U.S. But it's obvious that at every turn, they essentially sided with the far right and encouraged Zelensky not to make any kind of peace that he was elected on. Well, I mean, I think it's it's, it's always funny because if that's the case and we have these these uh, the, excuse me, we have the evidence that shows this, 
then the question is always how come people always you know say oh well you know there's not a far right a strong far right political party i mean they say nazi and i'm like i don't think it's a nazi necessarily but you have people who tip towards that point and they have political power so yes you're not saying the actual nazis are in power but you do have a strong far right group who use these more extremist uh, groups on the ground but you you know, anytime you bring this up, it's always, oh, no, you're just exaggerating. They don't have any political power. They have like 2% or 3%. It's, it's maddening that you have to keep like trying to find these articles to keep going. Here it is. The t- you said it yourself in the Times. They have political power. They could have easily ousted him. Yep, but, exactly. And I, th- and I think the only person, I think the U.S. did this. I mean, think about what the U.S. got. They got countries, other countries that never joined NATO to start joining NATO. You know, other countries to start beefing up their budget. I'm sure you're going to, they're going to start buying U.S. weapons, if, if nothing else. So they, the U.S. wins no matter what. They win whether – if Russia keeps going, they get richer. Either way, they also get to point – if Russia stops tomorrow, they can point to Russia and tell the other uh, countries who, were, who are thinking about joining, hey, if you don't join, this can happen to you. So I think the U.S. wins no matter what. Uh, there was just one question I wanted to give you um, – and you'll have to forgive me because I've been out for like two weeks. Worksman, just brutal. Uh, I think a while back I asked you if there was any evidence to suggest there were fighters, quote unquote, coming from Syria into Ukraine. And the only reason I bring this up again is because the BBC put out a video maybe about a week ago that used some really sketchy material to say that was true. And I say sketchy because they said they, quote, intercepted messages that said, um, oh, it's going to be like Libya. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, but that wasn't the Syrian military. Wasn't that the Turkish-backed uh, proxy groups that later went to, like, Azerbaijan? And then they cite, like, Turkish media saying that, you know, a Turkish media sources say that there are mercenaries flying into Russia. And I'm like, I, I, I really kind of want to see these exact sources, but I couldn't find anything. I don't know if you had any inf- uh, insight into that. Yeah, no, I keep hearing that, but I've yet to see any evidence for it. On either side, I remember seeing there was some re- effort in Syria to recruit fighters to fight on Russia's side, but I, you know, I've never, I haven't seen any footage of any Syrians inside Ukraine. Maybe they're there, but I, just, I haven't seen it. So yeah, I would think if the BBC had something, they wouldn't, uh, you know, have shown just quote unquote intercepted messages. I'm like, wouldn't you? Do you actually see people on the ground? But in uh, the sorry, just one last thing. I think I mentioned this to you or uh, two about a week ago or two weeks ago with you and Katie. But uh, I had said to you that if the Saudis are not playing ball, why doesn't the U.S. just pull some of its military forces back? Because you know they're there under our protection. And you said, well, they're just waiting for a more uh, Republican president. But I, I don't know if you've seen that viral that video that went viral. And I was like, well, that's a funny, but b you're kind of just kicking while down. That's got to take some balls to make that uh, that that video of Biden, you know, losing it. So you mean the you mean the comedy video on the side? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. on like state TV. That you know that got approved from the government. Right, 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 right. I don't. I just yeah. don't get why we don't do something about like we could just start saying, okay, you don't want to play ball. We'll pull off uh, pull our forces back and see how long you last in power. But then I think maybe it's you're lighting a match to a fuse if you do that. Yeah, look, Saudi Arabia is very integrated in the U.S. economy. It invests a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, controlling Saudi's oil supply gives the U.S. enormous power around the world. I mean, the petrodollar gives it mm-hmm. huge geopolitical leverage. So I don't think 
you know, even if Saudi Arabia acts out like they're doing now, making fun of Biden, I don't see there being a really big shift in U.S. policy. I mean, think about it. Biden said he was going to treat Saudi Arabia like a pariah. Remember all that on the campaign trail? <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, we're going – we recalibrated was the was the official line yeah. when he got elected. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's done none of that. He's done abs- – he's done, he's done nothing. And, um, you know, that's that's just the way it is. Right. Well, I don't want to take up uh, more time. So thanks so much, Aaron. Uh, thanks for the call. Day, you too. And Greg, you're up. Aaron, um, since it's just fresh on my mind, he was asking about mercenaries. There are there's plenty of uh, I mean, I'm sure you've seen plenty of uh, evidence of American mercenaries, you know, filming themselves. And um, especially on the Ukrainian side, where I feel like the media is a lot less regulated, although it is somewhat to a degree for civilians on the Russian side, the conscripts were not allowed to bring or not were prohibited from bringing their phones in. So most of the footage you'll see is from civilians filming Russians or, you know, um, people from the LNR or DPR or um, state state sanctioned kind of journalists and, or, or people they let in from other countries. So you're going to see a lot more mercenaries on the side of, um, of um uh ukraine and they have captured a couple of british guys in mariupol um and there's some videos of them and it's i mean it's terrible and actually there was a guy i saw an article who was looking for his kid in mariupol and he was this um hispanic guy and his ukrainian wife had taken his kid and fled out of the country even though he had like uh you know rights to the kid or whatever however you want to call it uh custody and so he's looking for his kid and apparently he died because, I mean, I don't know exactly how he died, but they found him. So it's it's a huge mess there. But uh, in regards to Zelensky, or, um, I was wondering um, what you, you know that like after he was elected, he joined a committee. It was called, um, shoot, what was it called? The uh, an enhanced opportunity program only a month after he was elected, even though he kind of ran on that, <laughs> that peace um, idea or, but the other problem with it is that the Minsk accord was never really going to be a solid way of finding peace. It was always had sticking points on both sides that were never negotiable. So there, there needed to be something else that evolved out of it. And I don't know. What do you think about that? Right. Well, but, but the basics of it, which is that the Donbass demilitarizes in return for some form of autonomy, that to me was the basis for whatever else needed to happen. I mean, you know, you take away the threat of, to Ukraine of the Donbass having weapons. So they laying down their arms and then in exchange, they get what they're looking for, which is some form of autonomy and how that autonomy looks gets worked out. But the fact is, you know, I think it's pretty clear now that it was Ukraine that chose not to implement it. And for the obvious reasons that every time the Ukrainian government, whether it was under Poroshenko or Zelensky, moved towards trying to implement it, or at least made the appearance that they were trying to implement it, they faced massive protests from the far right. They got violent. I mean, so, uh, police officers were killed and wounded in protests over the years led by the far right. And that sent a very clear signal that just Minsk was a was a non-starter. So yes, I, I know that, you know, it, it wasn't like the be all end all, but it was the base. I think it was a basis for something. It was a good start. And we know yeah. why it didn't work. 
It could have been the start, but it, I, even if they had, you know, given some autonomy to those regions, I think it, it still would have been a sticking point of Ukrainian neutrality, like Austria or something like that, like an Austrian kind of neutrality. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that would have been an issue down the road. But um, also, <laughs> have you seen how um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and I mean, I know there's actually the ceasefire going on there now, but have you seen that they're kind of vying for control over um, Socotra Island, which is an island that kind of is in the Red Sea, and it's very strategic because it's uh, at a really thin point, so it can be used to kind of monitor maritime traffic, and then or no, Socotra is the big island, and then the small island, small island, small island is a uh, Param. But Socotra is this really big island that is super um, diverse in its uh, kind of ecology and stuff. But they're like <laughs> vying for control over these islands, and I haven't heard anything about that in the in the media. And they're basically annexing Yemeni land, and uh, you know, it's just kind of like yep. <laughs> more of the same. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. So there you go. But all right. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the call. Tim, you are up. Hey, Aaron. Can you yeah. hear me? Or... Can you hear me, Aaron? Or... We can hear you, yes. Uh, okay. Sorry about that. Um, so I just wanted to try and draw a parallel between two things that I think are going on here. One is, um, you know, the difference between, you know, the prospect of Ukrainian uh, membership in NATO versus the de facto kind of membership in NATO that I think Mearsheimer and just this week kind of pointed out. Um, and the parallel is to the whole idea of, of um, Zelensky being a, a peace candidate, right? Um, what I'm trying to get at is, I think, um, you know, just as, uh, and as Scott Ritter has pointed out, they, you know, we've been training five battalions a year since 2015. Um, you know, there's obviously all sorts of trainers, all sorts of mercenaries, all sorts of uh, contractors working in Ukraine. Um, the whole idea that it's all about whether they join or not is a bit of a, a kind of red herring because we've already kind of achieved that, right? And in the same way, I think this whole notion of, you know, Zelensky being a peace candidate is, is again, a kind of a red herring because obviously everyone knew <laughs> that he couldn't do it. So do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think it's a... Um, I think it's a way of distracting people from the, the facts on the ground, really, on a, on a fundamental level. And so I think the idea, you know, I think you're, you know, I've said this before to you, and I, I don't mean to harp, but I think the, um, I think you're, I think we've lost the ball in the game. You know, the ball's already moved down the, down the field, and we're not, you know, we've lost it somewhere, <laughs> like in the backfield, kind of going, I thought this was about something that was diplomatic. It's not, right? Like, I mean, this is kinetic warfare now. This is something else. Do you, do you hear me? Or Yeah, I do. I just, the only uh, difference I might have with you is that whether he was ever sincere or not, that was his mandate. I mean, I, I remember at the time, you know, Ukrainians who I knew 
were really ex- were genuinely optimistic that they felt as if this guy was something different. Now maybe they were misled or naive, but there was genuine hope inside the country that he was actually going to follow through on what his mandate was. And as Stephen Cohen, the late Russia scholar, warned that same year in 2019 to me in an interview that there's no way he can succeed without the U.S. So right. it's a counterfactual now, but if the U.S. had actually had his back and gotten behind Minsk and, and further negotiations, then it would have happened. And th- I, and that's just the point I'm making. I, I'm not trying to argue that he I know was in Zelensky's heart and that he was sincere. And it could have been a con. I mean, the fact that he's funded by a major backer of the Azov Battalion suggests to me that it was a con all along, that he had never had any, any intention of doing it. But then you can look at other... But then you can look at other times when it looked like he was making some kind of effort. So I have no idea. The point to me is, is that a, a historic opportunity was, or at least a historic mandate was squandered. Because whether Zelensky was sincere or not, the people of Ukraine were in voting for him with 70% of the vote. And that was a vote for peace. And that's just, that's what the tragedy is here. And your point about NATO being sort of moot. Yeah, I agree. Uh, they've, if you look at all the treaties signed between the Ukraine and between Ukraine and the U.S., they're all about, as you say, promoting inter, inter interoperability, which means basically making Ukraine NATO ready. And that's what, that's what's been happening for the last eight years. They have been trained by all different sorts of uh, foreign uh, Western military forces. They've been given NATO weapons. They've been, you know, trained very heavily in, in, in being a NATO state. And that, I think, might help explain why they've done surprisingly well in this war, that they've been receiving, you know, sophisticated weaponry and training for the last, for the last eight years. So, yes, the, the idea of membership itself might be, uh, might, be a moot, might be moot at this point, given the realities on the ground. And that's why, you know, Russia has been spent, especially the early parts of the war, targeting NATO-tied infrastructure that is what they did i mean including that training center where they killed like dozens of uh people who were there inside a basically like like a nato base that was sending a very clear signal well there's another part of this that i i wish we could focus on a little bit which is just you know i i the level of repression that's going on in ukraine and has been going on i mean olas buzima who was a great journalist um, you know, it, it was the anniversary of his, you know, being assassinated in Kiev, I think in 2014, summer 2014 is just passed. You know, the, the idea that, um, just a couple of highlights, right? The tornado battalion, which was so incredibly vicious that the Ukrainians themselves put all these people in prison. And then they've just been released in order to terrorize, you know, Eastern Ukraine again. We're talking about incredible uh, cruelty and violence, right? I mean, uh, Zelensky handed out weapons by the tens of thousands to, you know, people in the middle of this war without any checks on anyone, right? I mean, the, the actual, or even talk about Aristovich. Uh, what Aristovich has been talking about. He's apparently a, you know, a, a close um, confidant and uh, advisor to Zelensky. And I don't know whether you've seen the, the videos of him, you know, praising ISIS tactics. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea, I think this, this whole scaffolding of this guy as, you know, this, uh, this heroic leader is 
preposterous given the record of what his policies in that country have brought about. You know, the banning of political parties. This did not start just when the war started. This has been going on forever. Medvedchuk, uh, you know, has been under house arrest for two years. The idea that it's even conceivable that this place is some bastion of freedom is absolutely... uh, it's, it's, it's an artifact of how completely controlled our media is and how completely delusional the West is about what is going on in that country. It's horrifying. And the, the fact that he also, the other day on television, you know, when he was challenged about the Azov battalions, you know, the, the, the punishers who've been sent into eastern, eastern Ukraine to uh, terrorize those people into acquiescence, he, he just said, well, they are who they are. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like exactly. It, it's it's I, I it's pretty black and white to me. You know, I, I think it's it's absolutely despicable that every country that I you know, the two countries that I have, I have a um, kinship to and and, uh, you know, um, citizenship or supporting this is the most revolting thing I've seen since Syria, which was actually amazingly enough worse. Right. Yes, so, it was. Yes, it was. The, the whole idea, the whole idea that that motherfucker, excuse me, would would say, you know, we we have to make sure that Syria doesn't happen again. What he's actually saying is, we have to make sure that Syria happens again. Right. You getting it? Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, anyway, I'm I'm rambling, but. You get my point. <laughs> absolutely. 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 And I agree with you. Tim, thanks for the call. Okay. Stefan. Hey, Stephen. Stephen, hi. Yeah, so you're soliciting opinions on Zelensky. Uh, and obviously, <laughs> or preface this, I'm not an expert on Ukrainian politics, but I'm just participating. Um, so the options were hero, victim, puppet. Um I think Zelensky's a figurehead. He doesn't have a lot of power. And I think that he's still alive. And um, <laughs> I don't know if there's much heroic about that, but definitely sane. So in real terms, from I, I don't think I'd wish his position on my worst enemy. Uh, he's caught between some pretty extreme people on every side. Uh, and every action he takes has potentially murderous consequences for millions of people. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that that would crush most people. Um, most people aren't psychopaths anyway. And so unless, yeah, I'm sure he's the hero of his own story. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, whether he has time to do anything aside from interviews, like ruling a country, I, I think the answer is completely obvious to me that that's no. So Newland picked his cap cabinet and compatriots. And so I think he's kind of in a vice. Um, so, I don't know that I see a difference between hero, victim, and puppet under the circumstances. I think that he'd be eliminated with the slightest shifting of the winds. I mean, if if Russia wins, obviously, if um, you know anything happens with the U.S. sponsorship of Ukraine, and if he actually tries to push for peace, I think that um, he, he he'd be eliminated. And so, I think I'd be hard pressed to judge him for you know trying to find out. <laughs> a way to stay alive, but yeah, that, that's kind of my opinion on the matter, anyway. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's he's not in an enviable position, that's for sure. Definitely for sure. Yeah. All right, Stephen, thanks for the call. And C note, you are up. Hey, Aaron, uh, big fan. Thanks for taking my call. 
So I had two questions for you, and they might not be easy to answer. From what I can tell, the U.S. and the West's policy towards Russia has been, you know, containing them to avoid them having influence and it being more a multipolar world. I've always scratched my head and wondered, you know, what's the thinking on that? What would be so bad about having uh, another influential power in the world? Is it just their mindset that's ingrained and they don't have a logic behind that? Is it driven by a desire for Russia's resources? And then my second question for you is, um, listening to Scott Ritter and Douglas McGregor, it seems as if Russia's win is imminent. But if you listen to everybody else on Western media, it seems as if Russia's loss is imminent. And I just don't see how the West would allow, assuming uh, Doug and Scott are correct, for Russia to win. It, I don't. I don't see how they handle going from telling us for a month it's going horribly bad for Russia to telling us Russia has won. And I was wondering how you see that playing out. Well, on the latter question, the only way to stop Russia from winning is direct military intervention. And there are people, like we heard Chris Coons, advocating that now. But at least for Biden, the problem he faces is the Pentagon. The Pentagon knows what it would mean to fight Russia, and they don't want to, at least as far as I can tell. So I think they're second best option from their point of view is just to drag on the war as long as possible. <laughs> and that means flooding Ukraine with weapons. I think that's what they are trying to do. I, um, I haven't heard Scott and Doug McGregor talk recently about where they think the war is at. Certainly they were predicting a quicker end to the war as far as I know than has happened. But eventually I think their main point is that eventually Russia will win just because it has superior force. Uh, and by the way, this was recognized uh, years ago by Anthony Blinken when he was uh, when he was tasked with with explaining the Obama policy and Obama did not want to send more weapons and Blinken said well actually I'll play the clip I have it right here we can uh, we can hear him say it in his own words he basically explained what like what is obvious that Russia by virtue of its military dominance can um can always can always overcome whatever the US does uh because it just has overwhelming military uh, predominance. Let me see if I have this clip here. Blinken. And oh, uh, and before I get that clip, on your first point, um, why does the U.S. insist on, on on doing this? Yeah, I I think hegemony is the main is the main motive. Uh, it's just that's that's what drives every administration, no matter who it is. That's just the guiding Washington doctrine. You just have to maintain U.S. supremacy, no matter what side of the spectrum you are. And everyone has followed that. It's just very, very ingrained. You, you don't get to exist inside the DC bubble unless you're committed to U.S. supremacy. So I think that's that's what the guiding aim is here. Um, and Russia being, a, you know, having nuclear weapons, being a large country, it's a deterrent to U.S. hegemony. So it has to be crushed. I mean, that's been a... Uh, Robert Gates explained in his memoir that Dick Cheney, after the Soviet Union, said that that wasn't enough, that we actually need to break up Russia into small little pieces itself because um, it's a power that can influence people. All right, this is Blinken in 2015, where he says, if you're playing on the military terrain in Ukraine, you're playing to Russia's strength because Russia is right next door. This this is Blinken. In a sense, if you're playing on a military terrain in Ukraine, you're, you're playing to uh, Russia's strength 
because Russia's right next door. It has a huge amount of military equipment and military force right on the border. Anything we did as countries in terms of military support for Ukraine is likely to be matched and then doubled and tripled and quadrupled by Russia. It has the ability to do that. It would be very difficult for us to do that. And then you may well get into an escalatory cycle that uh, is hard to control and hard to predict. You don't say. <laughs> That's Blinken in 2015, back when Obama was refusing to do what Biden is doing now, which is flood Ukraine with weapons. And Blinken accurately then pointed out that doing so would actually ultimately play to Russia's strength because Russia will always be able to overmatch Ukraine militarily, no matter how many weapons you send in. But now priorities have shifted for Blinken and Biden, and now they support doing that because they want they want to use Ukraine to bleed Russia. That's what they're doing. So um, that's uh, that's the policy. Hey, thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. E.N.D., you are up. And, and E.N.D., if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right, which you have to hit to unmute yourself. And if that's not working, I will let the next caller in, which is Jay. And, okay, Jay, we'll let you in now. Not we lost Jay. Okay, Adam, you're up. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? Hey there. Hey, I appreciate uh, everything you do. I've been following you for a few years now, and you know, you're, you're one of the journalists that I've come to depend on. And you know, along those lines, just listening to the mainstream news, you know, I'm in my early 40s. So when the Iraq War was happening in the early 2000s, you know, my head was not in the politics. I, I didn't understand foreign policy, anything. So just to start diving into these issues right now is, is a challenge because you really have to navigate through the media to figure out who to trust and what their motives are and all this stuff. So I'm glad there's watchdogs out there like you um, to, to help guide me closer to the truth. And along those lines, again, it's just, you know, my ignorance, I guess, on these foreign policy issues is my question is, is why is it so important that Ukraine not remain neutral, which would seem the best for both countries, Russia and the United States. Why, why does this have to be, you know, a, a pro United States um, country in Ukraine? Why does it have to be neutral? Why, why are they willing to risk, risk um, nuclear war over that? And that's basically my question. Thank you. It's a great question. It's a great question. Given that Russia is right there, given Russia's historical cultural ties to Ukraine, Given that millions of people inside Ukraine speak Russian, identify with Russia, or at least have for a long time, why try to pull Ukraine into one orbit? Why not just respect that it's a deeply divided country, as polls have consistently shown, and let it be neutral? Uh, the answer is that U.S. policymakers are more interested in hegemony at all costs and weakening their, enemy, their enemies, especially Russia. So they'd rather basically sacrifice global stability and Ukraine's well-being to basically bleed Russia. Um, that's that's the best answer I can come up with because otherwise it just it doesn't make doesn't make any rational sense. Um, but that's and then what they're doing. A point, 
there was a point that you made early on because everyone was a little surprised initially when Putin actually did start the war. And one of your tweets, you'd mentioned that Putin skipped about five steps. Like he didn't have to go straight to war. And for the most part, to my knowledge, the U.S. has been provoking Russia and Putin in one way or the other since at least 2014. I'm sure it goes way back before then. But I think maybe that's why he stepped it up. And now they're continuing to push the escalation and the rhetoric. And, you know, Biden's disastrous. He cannot remain in power comment. They can use that as leverage as they want to. It already opened up their, like, nuclear um, guidelines or whatever to follow. So what's to say Putin's not going to skip another 10 steps and just start attacking? I mean, this is a nuclear power. So it seems like everyone's a little too calm and easy about this dark thing that could happen, and especially with the media pushing for war. It's, it's really got me worried to the point because nobody else seems to be that worried. Uh, well, listen, I'm definitely worried. And people, everyone I speak to is definitely very worried. So, so you're not alone in that. Trust me. Trust me. It's just difficult because the media is so – they don't know anything else. The only way they, the media knows how to be critical and adversarial towards the administration is to basically – lecture them for not being hawkish enough for not being confrontational enough because that's just what they've been trained to do and they don't know any they don't know any other way they can't even fathom diplomacy and peace it just doesn't it doesn't cross their radar and let me say too this is a point that scott ritter has made that you know this isn't just about ukraine and it's not even just about nato this is also about the u.s ripping up arms control treaties for the last 20 years and encircling russia with missiles the bush administration pulled out of the abm treaty in 2002. And that allowed them to build these missile sites in Poland and Romania. And the official pretext that we get from the US, from Bush to Biden, is that we need these missile sites to defend Europe from Iranian missiles, which is a joke. Everyone knows it's a complete scam. Everyone knows the real reason why these missiles are there is to aim them at Russia. And so, you know, Ukraine is just one more pun in that, that if you can get Ukraine into the US orbit, you have a potential place that you can station offensive weaponry that put Russia at a disadvantage. And you also had on top of killing the ABM treaty, you had killing of the INF treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons, essentially. Uh, And it was Trump that killed that. And that's allowed both sides now to build up missiles aimed at each other. Um, And you also had the U S killing the open skies treaty. So that's also the context in which this takes place. And, you know, that's, I think what helped, lead Putin to act is because he's trying to basically signal that this has to stop. And I think he's also trying to use the occupation of Ukraine as leverage to roll back the destruction of arms control treaties and the place and the placement of weapons near Russia's borders. So Ukraine, unfortunately, has been caught in the middle of, a, of something that's much, much bigger than just within its own borders. And then one more thing on the media, because I'm, I'm actually in the media myself, just in a different realm covering sports. Um, but as far as that's where you, know, you can do honest push, journalism. That's that's I, the one realm you can do honest journalism is in sports. Yeah, this is true. But I, I am trying to slowly cross over into your um, realm. But I'm also, you know, not it, it's not easy to do what you guys do, because I, I really it's really disappointing to see when, you know, people try to be honest and tell the truth. Just the, the smearing that you guys have to put up with. And it's, I, it's just part of what you do. And I, I totally respect that more than I can articulate but as far as the media just, you know, the comparison keeps being made that this is like the media is behaving like the, the lie of weapons of mass destruction. And, and they are lying. But it just seems like 
you know, back, I'll admit, when I was in my early 20s, right after 9-11 happened, uh, you know, they were saying weapons of mass destruction. I was like, I don't care if they have them or not. Blow them up. 9-11. Like, that's all sure, I can yeah. Because, yeah. But now it just seems like the stakes are way different because we're not just going to be bullying some, you know, desert country and, and taking their leader out. This, this, this one's going to fight back. And everyone loses in a nuclear war. So it, it just it, – it doesn't seem like the stakes are matching – the media coverage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. Uh, like people... the United States is just going to go undefeated and just launch all their nukes and stop all of Russia's nukes. And, you know, we're just going to walk away from this clean. Uh, that just shows how completely embedded our media class is with our political class, which defeats the yeah. whole purpose of having a media. You're supposed to have a media that's adversarial. Yeah. I know a very veteran experienced journalist who I respect a lot who, is just you cannot believe what has happened to the u.s media it, it wasn't it's always been biased obviously towards power but it's never been like like this to the point of even just being so uh indifferent and even yeah, bullish yeah. on promoting a nuclear holocaust it's 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 crazy especially when you think back to when journalists were doing their job and, and things like the pentagon papers that actually shined a light Absolutely. Um, you know, a Vietnam War that, who, honestly, who knows how long that would have gone. So Absolutely. without that checks and balance, with, with that thing missing, like you said, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's pretty scary. But, you know, yeah. I just wanted to call in and, you know, it was a pleasure talking to you. I'll, I'll be calling into more of these shows. I, I, I love your work. And, you know, just all those haters out there are a lot louder than the people that actually support you guys, I, I think, because um, the people that you do reach, it, it's, it's much more important. I totally agree, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, Adam. All right. Thank you. Adam. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. All right. END, or NATO, NATO, not END, NATO, you are up again. There you go. Hi there. Are you there? All right. We're going to have to bring in the next caller because I can't hear you. And next caller is Ian. Hey, uh, this is Ian. Uh, nice to talk to you. Uh, I really, really love your work. I really love your work with Katie. I'm so happy when you, uh, when you, when you joined her. And so, I, so I wanted to ask you, I was going to say something else, but uh, just to, I wanted to riff a little bit on what the last guy who was talking said, which is I, thinking a lot about and i take the point that the, you know th there is a kind of i mean when i listen to you talk about uh you know the sunday uh the, uh, the sunday shows and the extent to which they're obviously just an arm of the you know the u.s nation state um that's clearly true and but i've thought about whether it is really possible for there to be the kind of ideal sort of confrontational, you know, kind of like, you know, quote, good media that the, the last guy was talking about uh, right there at the end, because I, I get the appeal of that. Like, you know, I think Glenn Greenwald is like awesome. I love him um, because he's a huge asshole. And I think journalists should be huge assholes. Um, but I also think a lot about the fact, and this is uh we're all finally round, uh, round the corner to a question mark, uh, is do you also think that 
that political movements and any kind of political uh, sort of coherent political organization doesn't it need kind of its own media to talk to itself, right? That's the success of Fox News is that it is a reactionary organization that allows reactionaries to talk to themselves. It's not neutral. It is a way to coordinate. Um, and so I don't know. And here's the question, Mark. What do you think about all that stuff? So are you saying that like lefty, the lefty progressive side needs its own media for it to get anywhere? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I have a daily worker, uh, you know, a poster hanging on my wall where, you know, mm. communists could talk to each other. Um, and, yeah. but that, but that's not the same thing. And I think it's, it's kind of, it's a little incompatible with the liberal ideal of, which is a fundamentally liberal ideal of a kind of neutral media that, you know, that's an intent. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think you can probably fill in the rest of the details yourself, but like, that's not the same thing actually. Um, and I don't, I don't know how to sort of square those thoughts in my mind because I believe both of them are true. And I, I don't know. So you're a smart guy. What, what do you think? Well, I think it'd be great if there was more left-wing media. It's just having worked in left-wing media my whole life, it's hard to get off the ground. And it's just, you inevitably have personality clashes and you're fighting for very finite resources. And it's difficult, that's, that's, but yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting that you that that's interesting that those are the things. So uh, it's interesting that it's personality clashes and finite resources. I, 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 and I believe you because, I, you know, I've loved your work for a long time. Um, that's interesting. I, I have nothing to. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you ever, have you ever organized in a left wing space? And, and I mean, was it, uh. was it, was it peachy? <laughs> was it smooth sailing? Yeah. That's the problem with workers is, uh, is, is uh, the whole point is that uh, deep down, they know that they're the ones uh, who, um, the, pro- the problem with the working man is that he knows that he's the one that makes all the value. And so it is a little hard to push him around as long as he's not talking to his boss. And uh, that's a good thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I, 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 I get it. Yeah. There's a, it's interesting. So there's a fundamentally kind of authoritarian character to right wing media because it's a fundamentally authoritarian ideology that makes things simpler. I never thought about that before. That's really, that's really brilliant. Uh, thank you. That's, that's one, that's, hmm. I, mean, but, I was going to say that's wonderful. But in that's, principle, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, sorry, say, yeah, yeah. sorry, say but again. in principle, but in principle, it's a, it should happen and I'm sure it will happen one day. I'm sure somebody will figure it out. It's just, it's very, it takes oh, a fair yeah. amount of money and it takes a, a certain personality that can handle a lot of different egos and overcome their own ego and all that stuff. And I just think that's a tough yeah, I mean, thing to do. I mean, we ha- we have a little bit of it. I mean, you know, we ha- you know we have labor notes, and we used to have the Daily Worker and things like that. And yeah, uh, and and we have, I mean, we have this right here, right? Which is the, it's which is like you know the, you know, I, I don't know if you describe yourself this way, but I would say I'm on the non-liberal left. You know, um, like talking yeah. Yeah, to each sure. other and, and and helping themselves and like coordinating and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And and I just I just there is a certain tension between that and the ideal, which I think is a liberal ideal of neutrality. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the idea of a neutral media, I think at this point 
is dead in the water. It just doesn't exist. Now, that doesn't mean you violate your, you know, uh, mandate to be factual. I mean, that's what good media is. It's you, factual. you don't lie. And, yeah. Right? You don't right. lie. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, a, a lot of people violate that now under the, under the guise of being neutral, which is funny. <laughs> they, yes, they yeah, to be exactly. neutral. Yeah. This, this is the thing. This is that, you know, and I, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let someone else uh, talk after I say this because I don't want to, you know, hog your time. But um, this is the funny thing. So I have, you know, a lot of, you know, make friends with all sorts of people and the sort of MAGA dudes in my life, they say stuff about the media that is all true. That, Absolutely. But, that, but that, I'm like, guys, it's been like this always. There is no era to which we can return where things were good, it's just that you noticed recently because your guy was suddenly at the end of, you know, <laughs> Russia Gate stuff, right? And it's like, and like, yeah, yeah. like the New York Times are all liars. And I'm like, I know that. You're right. And it didn't, it didn't happen in, you know, <laughs> you know, the late, you know, it didn't happen in January of 2017. Like, baby, they, <laughs> they've been scamming you your whole life anyway um well look well, maybe maybe helpful. that awareness. Uh, yeah thanks a lot so that's 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 enough out of me uh somebody else should uh yeah thanks a, thank you thanks, Th- thanks man I, re- I really love your work you're the best i appreciate that all right dan gooner you are up And if you were there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you hit to unmute yourself. Oh, okay. Hi. There you go. There we are. There we are. Uh, You know, technology, our fantastic, this platform, I'm amazed at the interactivity and things like that. So it's great. I just wanted to make two points, and I'll just, you know, listen to what you have to say, take it offline. Uh, And it's, it's about neutrality. Right. It's about neutrality as it relates to media neutrality. And I think a couple of people just prior was talking about, you know, the, the, the farce of media neutrality. I mean, I think it was uh, one of your colleagues on Colin. I think his name is Michael. I'm trying to think of it. Michael Tracy who was yes. talking about an American uh, journalist from one of the big major media agenda setting media organizations that was actually on the Polish Ukrainian border. And apparently he was having a conversation with one of his translators who told that this particular journalist was actually facilitating the entry of American uh, mercenaries into Ukraine to join the Ukrainian forces. And he wow. actually had it on good authority that they were doing that. I mean, again, don't quote me. You, if you have a relationship with Mr. Tracy, you can ask him. He was speaking. I was just bowled over. The, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, apparently he had a, he had it you know heard it firsthand from a translator working directly for one of the big uh, muckety mucks with one of the big media. Over. He didn't mention which one. He just said everybody knows them. They're so global and etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that's you know media neutrality for you. And then the second point, I guess I just want to ask you was about you know political neutrality. Everybody's talking about you know Ukraine, the necessity the the reasons why 
he could have taken and chosen that path. There were so many avenues and so many agreements and so many things that could have happened to get them to stay neutral. And yet, you know, they chose, uh, chose a different course. And we are where we are today. And in that way, and I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on this now imminent move by, you know, the, the Nordics, the Swedes and the Finns to now seriously look at moving into uh, the a military alliance with NATO, which I can't for the life of me figure out why they would want to do that, because I haven't heard anything suggesting that Russia has threatened them in any way, shape, or form. I mean, there might have been some, you know, submarine incursions into Swedish waters some time ago, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I don't know why they would uh, opt for something like that, uh, and I can only imagine that that's going to put them into a much more difficult situation with all of the you know, pressures that come with uh, becoming part of another military alliance. You know, the interoperability, as you said, about you know, making their weapon systems the same, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, just I'll, I'll shut up and get your report. Yeah, listen, in terms of Finland, why they want to join NATO, I have no idea. It makes no sense to me from where I sit. I've never visited Finland, and so I don't know what, where they're coming from, whether for some reason they have a fear of being invaded by Russia as a result of Ukraine. I, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear what people from there have to say, but there, there was a caller to, I think, the last episode of the show from Finland who just warned about how scared he is that this is a prospect, and I, I agree. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think they're any under serious threat from Russia. And they've coexisted with one another, sure. right? I mean, for yeah. many, many years. And they've years, done well. I mean, and it's worked yeah, out well for them. Trade. It's worked out well. I mean, yeah. And I mean, they've even had like, you know, from what I understand, they've even had like, you know, the, their police forces on either side of the border actually work with each other to stop, you know, drug trade and things like that. I mean, they've, I just can't imagine that all of a sudden the, you know, levels of paranoia have just heightened so much that now all of, you know, oh, my God, you know, it's an existential threat, et cetera. And, of course, Russia in turn of saying, well, guys, if you're now going to turn and make yourselves a base to then point the nukes at us, well, come on. I mean, we've already drawn a red line with the Ukraine. Now yep. you guys who were living, coexisted with us for all these years, for decades, now you, all of a sudden we're now, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's just, anyway, you know, listen, I mean, everybody's losing their shit, it would seem. And we yes, just they hope are. that sometimes <laughs> yeah. some, you know, some sanity has to prevail at some point. And by the way, what is also interesting, and I was reading this, 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 this interview with um, Noam Chomsky, and he put it actually quite aptly when he said, you know, uh, everybody talked about the world, the world, the world, you know, the world is thing of the world. You know, it's interesting that outside of the Anglosphere countries, European countries, and maybe Japan and Korea, the entirety and the majority of the population of the planet, you know, have, well, they do condemn what's obviously, uh, you know, a war crime on the part of somebody who invades a sovereign country. But they are a lot more reticent about coming out and taking sides. And as Chomsky said, you know, the South is sat, sitting back, bemused at Europe that's, revoked, that's reverted back to its traditional pastime of mutual slaughter, you know, uh, as we enter this sort of existential face. And of course, what's different now than what it was 70 years ago is that everybody has nukes. Absolutely. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And I don't I just, and, and the, the cavalier, almost the callous way in which journalists and others talk about, you know, 
how you can square up to uh, um, a power that has 8,000 thermonuclear weapons that can pretty much obliterate the planet in, a, you know, in, in seconds. I just, anyway. Absolutely. I, I guess this is the world we live in. All right. Yes, All right. it is. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I love what you do. Keep, keep on keeping on. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. All right. Al, you are up next. Hello? Hi. Hi. Um, thank you. And a couple callers ago said that journalists have to be assholes. I doubt you're an asshole. So, <laughs> I agree. I, I hope you're right. But yeah. <laughs> um, so on Rising with uh, Kim Iverson, I just saw, I saw a clip of her, what they call the radar. Do you know, now it has Brianna, Brianna yeah. 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 Okay. So, uh, so she went over Putin's last speech and said something about him saying that Britain's to blame, Great Britain's to blame for everything, for the Buka, for the Buka massacre, I think is what she was saying. And uh, I just wondered if you know what that's about. I don't. I didn't see her commentary. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what Putin's speech she's referring to. If he, if he blamed Britain for Bucha, I, I mean, if he did, then I imagine what he's doing is saying that they were, had, they were somehow responsible in staging a scene. That's, but I, I can't speak to that because I don't recall him saying that. So, unfortunately, okay. yeah. All righty. Well, thank you. Thanks for the call. And I'll try, I'll look into it. And if I can, if I can find it, I'll, I can talk to you about it next time. All right. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. And Zach, you're up. Hi, uh, hi, Aaron. Hi there. Um, so I've been really uh, interested by the reporting you've been doing um, lately on uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, and I really, this whole thing is still so confusing to me um, because of how it's being reported Um so differently depending on the source that you uh, look to, um, to find information out about the conflict. Um, But I feel like I heard a good bit about um, all of that already. And I was hoping I could just ask you a quick question about like, um, how you would recommend someone who might be interested in doing journalism, like get started. Um, and how to do um, foreign policy analysis from home, or at least to start out that way, Um, and how to, like, get people to read your stuff and um, get better at analyzing world politics and uh, that kind of stuff. So I don't... uh, Do you have any advice about that? And I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. Look, see, the problem for me is it's hard to give advice period because every, every person's situation is, is unique. But second of all, it's especially hard for me to give advice to people who share my political outlook is just because I think it's such a impossible 
uh, world, the media world to exist in. Um, I've been very lucky. I've managed to break through, but to have the kind of opinions that I have, you're going to get punished for it and you're going to get deterred. People are going to call you names, they're going to invent lies about you and you're not going to get the opportunities that you would otherwise if you were conformist and you played along. And so, I mean, in terms of giving advice, it's just very hard to, to give because I don't, it's, I, it's, it's a very difficult system to navigate and you'll get punished for having integrity. At least that's, that's my experience. So So do you feel like, it's just like impossible to. Um... No, it's not impossible. What I would say is, uh, first of all, I think it's important. I mean, for, like what, what I tell people asking who talk about entering journalism, I, I, I think it's important to have another career in mind if journalism doesn't work out and another way to support yourself, especially because at least at first, you, like you're not going to be able to support yourself doing the kind of adversarial journalism that you want to do. It's just there's not a huge. Um, there's not, there's not a lot of opportunities to do it. You know, like the, the main way now is to, is to do it via the support of your audience, which, which I've been able to do, but it, it took a long time and that's, you know, it's not, it's not accessible for everybody. So I would say, think about having another way to earn a living so that you're not, so that when you get punished for having the views and same things you have, you'll, you'll have something to fall back on and you're not just relying on on journalism for it. Yeah. And I'll also say, you know, it, uh, you know, like it, it might, you know, to build up like, you know, credibility and, and an audience, it might help to avoid political topics at first, just so you establish some, you know, you have some general violence. like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you show that you know how to, how to do reporting, you know, yeah. and, and, and it also doesn't put, and if you're covering a non-political topic or a non-super political topic, it also then relieves you of the pressure to try to, to basically water down and distort what you have to say in order for it to be palatable. Right. So for example, like if you want to cover Russia gate uh, or whatever, Syria or anything that's like, you know, a third rail and you want to get somewhere in media, you're not going to be allowed to be honest. You're just not, you know, yeah. um, like the, the, uh, an example that I give is there's a Washington Post reporter named Joby Warwick who's been, you know, veteran reporter, did some good stuff around the Iraq war, and now he's covering Syria and chemical weapons. That's his main beat right now. He wrote a whole book called Redline about Syria and chemical weapons, and he's written a bunch of articles about Syria and chemical weapons. So his, his entire book – and I don't know if you've caught the, the, the reporting I've done about Syria and chemical weapons with the OPCW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically this guy writes a whole book. The topic is Syria – the OPCW and chemical weapons. And he ends his book on the topic at Duma in 2018, this alleged chemical attack uh, yeah. that was blamed on Syria, but turned out to be a hoax essentially. And, and we know by that. And, and we know that because of a massive cover up that was exposed at the OPCW. But this reporter, Joe work doesn't tell us about that. He ends his book at the incident itself and says that the OPCW later on confirmed it was chlorine and says nothing else about it. He doesn't even acknowledge the existence of the OPCW whistleblowers and their trove of leaks. Yeah, and that's and, just and dishonest. It's completely dishonest. And he hasn't since. He, he's written a series of articles about Syria and chemical weapons. And he hasn't. Uh, he, hasn't even, he still has not acknowledged the existence of the OPCW whistleblowers. So, so just imagine that. You're covering yeah. a topic where you have whistleblowers inside the OPCW, uh, which is a major part of your reporting, alleging a massive cover-up. And they're not just alleging it; they have they have documents to show it, which anybody can read. 
and your report covering it, and you can't even bring yourself to acknowledge their existence. And the same thing goes, by the way, with a guy named Robert Mackey, who's at The Intercept, who just oh, this yeah. week just this week wrote a column about where he read he, he talked about Syria and Duma and chemical weapons. And again, he cited his own articles on the topic from back when Duma happened, but he did not acknowledge the existence of the OPTW whistleblowers. So that's that's how you get published in in U.S. media. And by the way, Robert Mackey is not working for the Washington Post. The Washington Post, okay, you expect them to be stenographers. Robert Mackey's at The Intercept, which is supposed to be adversarial. Right. So someone like yourself who wants to be adversarial, that puts you in a position where even the adversarial outlets are completely dishonest on such critical issues. So that's, yeah. that, that's just, you know, but yet that's, those are the ones that have the resources and, pay, and actually can pay people. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's and, really and just, tough. And just quick, quick, quick follow-up. Uh, do you think that with this new sort of, and I don't know how I don't I don't know how I feel about it in totality yet, but just like the way that Tucker Carlson will have on like Glenn Greenwald, or he'll have on voices that are more left that that are I mean Glenn Greenwald is obviously on the left, and uh, and I really respect a lot of what he does and a lot of his work. So like, do you think that that kind of thing and how like Tucker Carlson is like the most watched show uh, in terms of news, uh, TV news, like that that's going to open up any sort of tiny doorway, even though it's still shelled in corporate media, like for independent voices to like get through to that wider audience. I mean, and I know Glenn has like a pretty successful sub stack and I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'd rather have the, you know, opportunity that Tucker Carlson sometimes provides than not. It's good that Glenn gets to go on and that I get to go yeah. on. I mean, the, the only place that I can reach a mass audience about the serious scandal is Tucker's show. That's it. Even, That's right. my, even my old show, Democracy Now!, which I worked at for 10 years, won't cover it. And yeah. And so that's just sad, but it's like, and it also it also only reaches a fraction of the audience, absolutely, as well. absolutely, and and of course CNN or or MSNBC. So, but in terms of you know, can that break the corporate logjam? I don't think so. It it's it's just one show, although yeah. it's um, the fact that it succeeds, the fact that it has such a big audience, speaks to the hunger there is for independent journalism. And, and I guess that's the that that's what I would um, that that's the point of optimism here is that you know what aspiring independent journalists have going for them is that right now the reputation the brand of corporate media has never been lower oh, like it's no terrible, one takes, yeah no no one takes cnn seriously anymore i don't know if you saw but cnn just had this new subscription service cnn plus oh yeah. my god and less than ten thousand people are using it <laughs> yeah which is like which is way less than i get for one youtube video that and I chris out. wallace is like freaking out because yeah, sure. no one's tuning sure. in Sure. But that's what you get when you just you're when you're not doing your job as people are going to recognize that eventually. And that's what's happening. So that is the one area of genuine optimism that I would point to, you know, for you to take some heart in is that the, you know, the the faith in U.S. media has never been lower because people recognize that they're not doing journalism. They're just being stenographers for the centers of power. And so. Any opportunity you have to you know, ex- exploit that is is good, and yeah. um, and you know now there are you know there's there's Substack and there's there's all different kinds of ways that people who are creative and innovative and have something to say can can be heard. Although it's it is difficult, 
Um, and well, uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate, uh, you know, dialoguing with you. Thanks for calling. I appreciate that. All right. Bye. All right. And, and NATO is back in the call. Are you there this time? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah, it was my first time using the app, so I'm glad I got through. So somebody was talking about the way that um, the influence of Azov and the political electoral influence of neo-Nazis are minimized in um, in relation to Ukraine. And the problem with that is that it's not just electoral and it's not just one battalion. It's... Um, you know, ultra-rightists, neo-Nazis, neo-fascists are in all levels of society. They have social influence, political influence, cultural influence. Um, you know, there's a para-police force, the C-14 in, in uh, Kiev. There's the civil militias, um, which I'm pretty sure dealt out the rough justice that we saw in Mariupol, you know, the taping people to police, to a to the telephone poles, the Roma people, to telephone poles. Um, there, they do. I'm pretty sure they're civil militias that you know gay hunt on on weekends in the big cities. They're the ones that have committed literal um, Roma pogroms. You know, there've been Romas that have been murdered. And I think one of the most egregious. Oh yeah, the you know sort of in terms of the social influence is that. Okay, so this battalion has 1,000 members, but the social influence is, is all, it's very deep. But, you know, there's summer camps for children, there's social clubs. Uh, I've seen estimates of, you know, sort of like a 50,000 person, you know, interest, like, I don't know what you would call it, like supporters of Azov. And, um, but yeah, the, one of the worst things that I've seen is the, the military, the, the Ministry of Defense leases out you know, a zero dollar building to the Azov battalion right in downtown Kiev. It's a recruitment building. I mean, imagine if the Pentagon, you know, gave a free building to, you know, three percenters or Proud Boys. And it's a four story building. And it's, you know, not just a recruitment center. There's a boxing club. There's a bookstore. So when people try to minimize the electoral and the, um, the battalion, it's it's just much deeper. I mean, it's a resurgent force in Ukraine, and they're also very ideologically motivated. I mean, it might be a very small percentage of the Ukraine population, but they're just the most motivated and the most militant. So they are a problem. And, um, you know, one of the worst things that, that we've seen, oh, yeah, we have the Bandera National Hero Day, the official, you know, national hero and the national day of heroism and you know, you have the Bandera, you know, um, boulevards, the Renewed boulevards. So um, these are all just <clears throat> the rot, you know, the rot in the society. And the worst things that we've seen are the police and the legal impunity for the for the Odessa fire, the terrible like trade union hall Odessa fire in in 2015. And by the way, you know, I I hope very much then that when Russia and Ukraine goes to the table, that, that Russia demands that justice be served for this, this horrible war crime. Like, as far as we know, this is a confirmed war crime. You know, we don't know about Bucha yet, which is horrible if that happened, you know, if civilians were handcuffed, I mean, hand, hand bound and, and, you know, 
shot in the street is terrible, but I'm also so skeptical because of all the shit that we saw in Syria, you know, all this age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the firing on civilians, the, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, all the ways they stage it. And I, I think this war is, I thought that we had like media malpractice in Syria, but I think this is even worse. And it's really hard to believe. It's pretty, it's bad. pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you to meet yourself because you're, you're giving us some, some feedback. If you don't mind, um, oh, yeah. and um, but yeah, no. Listen, I uh, some of what you said there, I didn't even know. So, 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 thank you for that. And I'll say, yeah, exactly. The fact that no one's been prosecuted for the Odessa massacre, where for those that don't know about it, this is right after the February 2014 coup. So, in early May 2014, there's a group of protesters in Odessa against the Maidan coup, and a group of far right activists rounded them up, forced them into a trade union building and set them on fire. And dozens of people lost their lives. When people tried to exit the building, they were beaten um, to death. Uh, and those who were trapped inside died. And no one's been prosecuted for it. It's so obvious that there's a cover-up going on. And by the way, no one's also been prosecuted for the Maidan massacre, which was when it happened, this was when snipers shot people in Maidan Square during the coup, the, right around the time of the coup, 20, February 2014. A lot of people were killed, and this was blamed on the government of Yanukovych, of his forces. But then there's been all sorts of um, studies on this. One, the one I often quote is by a professor at the University of Ottawa, where he says, based on witness testimony, videotapes, forensic evidence, the angle of the shooting, that it's very clear that the snipers were actually on the Maidan side, um, that there were basically snipers brought in to kill their own people to basically stage a provocation that could lead to unrest and force Yanukovych from power, which is exactly what happened. There's also a leaked phone call, similar to the phone call that was intercepted with Victoria Nuland. There was a phone call with where the, um, where the EU foreign minister is speaking to the foreign minister of Estonia, I believe. And they talk about how they believe also that the snipers were on the Maidan side. And they talk about how this has to be quiet. Basically that's another leaked phone call. So, that's also grounds um, not only to just be very uh, worried about, you know, impunity inside Ukraine for far right violence, but also to be skeptical of any claims we get coming from the war because they're, you know, it's so easy to make claims, but what, what really matters is, is what the evidence is. And every time you look at evidence, as in the case with Syria, so many of the official narratives fall apart. And so there's no, I have no doubt that that's being repeated in Ukraine, I, I certainly, you know, in terms of what happened in Bucha, I have no idea. I, again, I, I wouldn't put it past Russia to commit war crimes like they're being accused of. War crimes often happen during war, and Russia is no different than anybody else. So I wouldn't be surprised if some, at least some of what they're accused of is true. But the rush to judgment is what is um, reckless, and there needs to be credible, independent investigations. Same with the train station. You know, th there was that train station that was recently hit, and everybody blamed Russia for it without showing any evidence and that's sort of gone away. No one talks about that anymore. And I think if I had to guess what happened there, I think that was a Ukrainian missile that was not, that just went array. It wasn't intended to hit the train station, but it did. And, and Ukraine, instead of owning up to it has blamed Russia. That's my, that's my educated guess based on the evidence that I've seen. But again, that's a case where if the U S were to release satellite imagery or other evidence that could help clear it up. And the fact that they haven't to me says something. So, um, Thank you for the call. We're going to move on because we uh, 
we're gonna have to wrap very soon. So thank you for the call. And Jay, you are up. Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Ah, yes, finally. I'm working outside, so it's hard to see the phone. Uh, first, I, I want to thank you so, so much for your incredible insight and your commitment to, to truth. It's just such a ray of, like, sunshine and, and I don't know what the word is, love maybe in a, in a landscape, uh, even on the left with people that I agree with. Of um, uh, Your work is just so... So beautiful. I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Um, to get to the question on Zelensky quickly, I think he's a puppet at best. And the reason I called in today, actually, I live in a pretty small town north of Boston, Gloucester, Mass. And um, I was at the store the other day, a, a marine store and, uh, you know, nautical stuff. And uh, the clerks that waited on me, I was talking to him about politics. And he said, yeah, well, I got solicited a month or so ago. He's been out of the military. He's a young guy, a year or so. And apparently there's people offering $60,000 a month uh, for, you know, U.S. soldiers. And I think he was just a grunt uh, to go in the military. And I'm just sort of, he was sort of horrified. Uh, mercifully, he didn't do it. Of course, I tried to dissuade him with every ounce of my intellect and heart. But he didn't want to do it anyways. But, uh. He was wondering where all the cash comes from, you know. Um, and that's all. Thank you, brother. Thank you for your 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 commitment to truth and your your great work. I, I, well, thanks. Listen, I, I really appreciate. I, I really appreciate the kind words. So thank you, Murray. And yeah, the mercenary thing. Uh, I've I've no. I'm not surprised to hear that. That it's obvious what's going on. That people are being incentivized to go there with with money, and they're attracting a lot of people, and that's. A similar thing happened in Syria, too, where the insurgency had all the money in the world from Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And just so it was very easy to get fighters, especially living in desperate situations, not just in Syria, but elsewhere, too. You know, you're offered money to go fight a war. You're promised that it's not going to be, you know, the, the, it, that it's not going to be so bad. And, and, and people, t people in desperate situations take up that opportunity. And I have no doubt that's happening in Ukraine as well. It's, um, it's sad. So, sorry to pass on such horrible news, but I, I figured I'd put it out there. You know? Hey, no, that's what we're here for. <laughs> we're here for the bad news. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. All right. You. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Matt, you're up. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for all the work you do. Uh, it's really inspiring to all of us. And uh, I don't know if you remember, I called literally a few weeks ago, right before the Russian invasion. I was talking about how it's very telling how much attention is on the Russia-Ukraine situation, whereas the situation with Saudi Arabia and Yemen, of course, the situation which the U.S. is deeply complicit in, got almost no attention. Of course, that that disparity has only become worse. And um, so it got me thinking, you, you had just mentioned and you, with a caller a few calls ago about this idea of neutrality. And I come at this uh, interestingly from a media standpoint, but I'm by profession, I'm an educator. I'm, I'm, I teach high school history. And I think it's deeper than media malpractice. I think a lot of this uh, media malpractice is embedded in American culture. So I'll give you an example, like the way we talk about how 
media will often commit lies by omission. Um, you know, Chomsky talks about this, actually, like Michael Parenti's analysis of this even better. But it's not that the media is out there lying all the time. Most of the lie, most of the propaganda is not outright lies. It's omission. And, and I'll give you an example for education. At the beginning of the school year, we try to start with this like <laughs> deprogramming exercise where we give the, the students a list of like 50 events. And we say, all right, we'll try to find this in the textbook, these events. And they're all events that are pretty important. But nonetheless, the kids will, you know, they'll do the control F or look in the index. And lo and behold, they will not find the event in the textbook. This is the standard American history textbook used for all uh, AP classes in the United States. And there are events like the East Timor genocide or the Indonesian genocide or the move bombing or uh, Operation Paperclip, things that don't reflect well on what this country is. And again, they don't they don't find them. So they are being propagandized from the time they are in school. And, you know, that's very hard to break. And I'm just wondering if you like if you look at the bigger picture, do you see that connection to the larger culture between the way that Americans are educated? Maybe we can, you're I know you're from Canada, so I don't know if there's a similar dynamic in, in Canadian education system. But so, I mean, I'll close right now. But, you know, we hear all this talk about uh, uh, critical race theory and conservatives complaining about kids being propagandists. It's like they're what they are complaining about is kids learning about the reality of the very basic reality of race and racism in American history. And what by demanding that be censored, to me, that's like super offensive because they're demanding that an already thoroughly propagandized population is gets even further indoctrinated. Um, and I'm wondering if you see that connection between the background, education, our entertainment, <laughs> does that connect to how easily Americans get propagandized by the news media? And thank you for all your work, Aaron. I'll hang up now. Well, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course I do. Of course I see the connection. I mean, that's that's what our propaganda system is there to do, is to uh, basically deprogram people from thinking critically and condition them to accept the state line. And that's deeply embedded in our education system. And obviously that prepares people to be the media consumers that they're expected to be, just blindly accept what their holy leaders and state stenographers tell them and don't ask questions. And if the education system was different and was actually doing its job of, 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 of educating people to think critically and think for themselves, uh, then it wouldn't be like that. So I, I, I of course I do. Um, so yeah. Oh, and you're gone. So that's, I guess that's it for that call. So thank you. I totally agree with everything you said. So thanks for calling in. All right, Eric, you are next. It's Aaron Mate live. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You can hear me. Yeah. Happy Easter. Um, I don't know if you celebrate at all, but, uh, it's a beautiful day. I hope you're enjoying it. I just got back from, uh, a GWU event, fossil fuel free uh, GWU. So I got to see a lot of the young people, and uh, you know, I, I don't. What can I say? I want to cheer you up. I want to feel a little hopeful, but uh, that's why I always like to start with a joke. But I want to make the point about neutra- <laughs> <laughs> neutrality. Well, I, appreciate I appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, something in America, it's like I wish we could talk about historical concepts more because people are so out of the loop in terms of like you bring up Naira. You know, we really got to teach people about Naira and the incubators and all that stuff. 
you know, I mean, when you're supposed to have learned about it in school, like, for example, in World War One with the Germans uh, bayoneting babies in Belgium and stuff. And it's like, you know, and I guess the lesson there is that when you have those false reports of atrocity and then that makes people not believe the real reports of atrocity when the Germans do come back in the Second World War. But, you know, the... The the thing I want to do is I, I, I get this instinct that I just want to depoliticize all of it and just take it to Dr. Phil, somebody we can agree. I don't know if you know Dr. Phil, but he <laughs> says, I don't care how how flat you make it, a pancake's going to have two sides. <laughs> and, you know, this is when he has people on his show who are both arguing over custody of battles or whatever. But you know what? It's just this, it's the same thing as big, these nations. Like, I don't know if you saw that report where the diplomats are like, oh, we didn't even um, bring NATO up. It wasn't even on the table. And it's like, what is the point of having these diplomats? They don't even try. They don't even believe in the concept of diplomacy. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, did you see that? Um, did you ever get confirmation on that video? I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but people were trying to dispute it. But there's, for example, the video of the tank that shot the people who were just kind of standing there. I, th- I remember, I th- if I know the video you're talking about, I, I remember seeing it being said that that was a Ukrainian tank that was taken over by Russians and they fooled Ukrainians into thinking that they were on their side and they killed them. Is it that one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, that video, you know, it's a weird thing, right? Because the this, the media censorship is going in a lot of different directions, and one of the directions is in terms of which atrocities, you know, they're going to show on the TV and news and, you know, and I was pretty amazed, but it, it was undeniable, like when the New York Times went ahead and confirmed that, yeah, that video, too many people had seen that video of specifically the the soldiers, the POWs being murdered, um, for them to just deny that or minimize that. And the thing, the big point is like, for example, people, I love it when people say, oh, the Azov, it's only 3%. And I'm like, oh, you know, in America, we have this group called the three percenters who believe that, you know, if you organize 3% of the country, (laughs) that they can do a revolution. Uh, I wonder how they're doing over there. And it's like, you know, what, what is the acceptable number of Nazis? That's the question you just have to ask people. In a country <laughs> where, you know, I was watching this thing, this documentary, but it was, it was made the point that in the modern day Ukrainian borders, one fourth of the Holocaust happened. 1.5 million Jews were killed. And it wasn't through gassing mostly. It was, you know, the Holocaust of bullets. And I don't know if you've heard this term. And it's almost become a fashionable term, the Holocaust of bullets, because they've accused Russia of doing the same thing in like Bucha. And it's like, um, but in any case, um, I think, yeah, it's warped. It's warped how uh, conspiratorial mindsets, you know, that grip our, you know, uh, educated classes. What they'll do is they'll take evidence that's supposed to disprove their point, and somehow that proves it even more. And that's the yeah. mark of any conspiracist. And that's the issue is you want to teach kids, you know. Um, yeah, that for, for, and the other big thing I want to think about, I want to mention, too, is that in terms of skepticism, like, it's just a matter of why do you need to know exactly what happened in Bucha that day? It, you can wait a couple of weeks and say, you know, it looks one way, it looks the other, but more information is going to come out, especially if you support, like, a legitimate investigation. Uh, and, of course, in America, we, you know... Uh, my point is, yeah, yeah, let's bring the ICC in and let's investigate crimes from both sides in Ukraine and in Afghanistan. Would you support that, you know, Tony? Absolutely. Lincoln, absolutely. Well, the, reason, <laughs> the, reason why, the reason why people want a quick answer is be, it's because this is being pushed for propaganda purposes. They want to justify increased sanctions, increased military intervention. So they need atrocities to basically plan people's fears like that. A sober response would be, let's have an investigation Let's find out what happened. Instead, we don't get that. Same thing with Syria. That should have happened after all these alleged chemical attacks. Let's get in the OPCW to do an investigation. Well, we all know what happened when the OPCW actually got in there and did an investigation. 
they got when they reached the wrong conclusion that Syria didn't do it, they got censored and, uh, and there was a cover up. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, someone like Scott Ritter, who is convinced that or he's very confident that Russia has been framed in Bucha, which, you know, I'm not prepared to go that far. But one thing he points out is that the bodies in Bucha did not look like they've been lying in the street for two weeks. That if you have a, a corpse like that that's been out for two weeks, it's not going to look the way those corpses looked, which they looked pretty f- newly killed. They weren't bloated. There wasn't fluid. I mean, all those gruesome things you you come to expect from a body that's been laying there for two weeks were not there. And so anyway, like that doesn't, you know, a- anything is possible. It's I don't plausible. Know, yeah. And, yeah. and the point about the food rations that the people had, well, how do you explain that in the other way? Because from the Ukrainian side, you know, he's, I, think, I forgot if it was him, but it was somebody who was saying, well, they trade those food rations for milk. So you're yeah. giving milk to the enemy. Um, we're going to set an example of you as a collaborator, quote unquote. And then yeah. I shared this, and then I don't know if you saw this other clip recently, but it said, well, it was the Ukrainian uh, doing face app to try to torture, well, uh, the mothers of Russian soldiers, and they were saying, well, because... Um, uh, because Russia calls it a special military operation, well, then you know what? The Geneva Conventions don't apply because the Russians are terrorists. This is not a war. And it's like, this is what, you know what? This is the kind of fascism that George W. Bush and, you know, this is what happens. This is how we get to this place. So, um, uh, uh, and we, we, we are, and we are, we can't get so precious about how our country is so much better than these other countries because it's like people in this country would, you know, if we nuked Moscow tomorrow, there'd be people saying good. I mean, and same way as I think Chomsky just recently mentioned, uh, I think he, he talked about how when Hiroshima happened and people just went on with their, you know, went on with their day and he was just kind of yeah, stuck Ch- there. Chomsky was a child. He was uh, he was at summer camp when that happened and he went off in the woods by himself because everybody else was indifferent to the news. They all And he was deeply, obviously, deeply upset. So he went in the woods and sat by himself. Um, and uh, But hopefully we're at a stage now in society where those of us who feel that we don't have to be alone anymore. And, and, and I think we're not. I mean, hey, like we're all here right now on this call. So, but and yeah. there's so many more of us. It's just people are, people are being bullied, you know, like John Bolton bullying. Uh, well, we know where your family is to the exactly. <laughs> chemical weapons guy. But you know exactly. what, guys? You know, we got to stop caring about people. We got to stop having that person in your head going like, oh, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> ignore it and just talk. Eric, thank you for thank the call. You. Have a good day. All right, open-minded, you are up. Can you hear me, Aaron? Yes. Hey, Aaron, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's an interesting observation regarding Ukraine on one hand, and you know, people on both sides are evoking comparisons with Israel. Uh-huh. So on one side, you'll say, oh, you're standing up for Ukraine, but you're not standing up for Palestinians. But on the other hand, people will smear leftists like Charles for saying, Oh, you don't blame the Palestinians for not accepting the peace offers and compromising on territory, yet you expect Ukraine to make compromises on their territory. What's your thoughts on all this? The two situations are not analogous at all. Uh, it's First of all, it's been Israel that's been rejecting peace settlements that could have resolved the Israel-Palestine issue for decades now. Uh, it was Israel that occupied the West Bank and Gaza, the Golan Heights, and Israel, that's the dominant power that's been that's been carrying out strikes against an occupied people. Ukraine, up until the Russian invasion, was not an occupied people. They were a sovereign country, and they had multiple opportunities to accept what everyone knows, or at least what I think everyone reasonable knows is the only solution, which is 
neutrality. Instead, they chose to be, basically be a, a U.S. proxy and wage war against their own people, against the Russian speakers of the Donbass. In, in Palestine, it's, it's different. That's an occupied people resisting an illegal military occupation. So uh, there's the analogy to me is just uh, there's, there's no basis for it. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to wrap very soon. So in the queue, we have one more caller, which is actually great. So no war. You were the last caller. What's up, Aaron? Hey, man. Happy uh, Easter, whatever you celebrate. I don't <laughs> celebrate anything myself, but happy happy Sunday to you. As to you as well. To you as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hey, I don't give you enough praise, and I really appreciate that you do these call-ins and these, these forums and, and that you produce the journalism you do, man. I uh, sometimes am critical of you, and, and I know that. You know, you're well, probably one of the more open people on that, but I just wanted to I throw, you, uh, throw you that little bit of praise today. Hey, I saw something from Caitlin Johnstone yesterday, and I just tuned in, so maybe you have mentioned this or mentioned it in passing, but she posted a headline of a Bloomberg article. Of the, the headline is, Ukraine war is depleting America's arsenal of democracy. And, you know, it talks about how many bombs we've sent to Ukraine and uh, that we're, you know, depleting our arsenal of, of bombs, which reminds me a little bit of when Obama kind of ran out of bombs because he was bombing so much um, during his presidency. I just wondered if you had any reaction. I just wanted to throw that headline out to you and see what you had to think about it. And, uh Yeah. Yeah, I saw that headline about our democracy arsenal is being depleted, and the arsenal basically meant weapons and sanctions. <laughs> and that's, uh, but I, I love the honesty. I love the honesty of that. You know, that's what they mean by spreading democracy is bombing people, flooding them with weapons, and imposing sanctions. So sometimes the right wing media, you know, is much. I mean, actually, often is much more factual than the so called liberal media. There was, there was recently some headline in the Wall Street Journal that, that said, like, if um, if we give too much to the welfare state, we're not going to have enough for the Pentagon or something like that. Something and and also <laughs> that if you know and if uh, and yeah, I, I mean, so look, um, it's refreshing to sometimes hear the truth, even if it's from people who don't understand why what they're saying is actually incredibly damning. They they actually celebrate what they're saying, but that's another story. Um, so yeah. Hey, can I ask you your quick opinion on Elon Musk potentially buying Twitter, which it looks like may not happen because they don't want it, but what were your initial thoughts about that? I didn't catch him on Twitter anywhere else. Any development that could possibly restore free speech to Twitter I think would be a good thing, whether it's Elon Musk buying it or, or anything else. Because uh, Twitter right now, I mean, as, as we just saw with Scott Ritter being banned for life when Scott Ritter is like p- providing, you know, like Twitter, obviously its importance is overblown. It's not, you know, it's not like that important, but it has some role. There is like some sense of yeah, Twitter yeah. has an influence. It, it helps shape opinions in some way. It's a, it's a place for people to debate. And Scott Ritter was 
playing a really important role. He's an, he's a former Marine Corps intelligence officer, a former chief UN weapons inspector, you know, years of experience, deep knowledge of Russia. He studied the Soviet Union. He helped implement the INF Treaty, which is the Cold War arms control treaty I talked about before that eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons between the U.S. and Russia. So he has experience. And he was on Twitter basically challenging or debunking a lot of the widely accepted narratives around the war in Ukraine. And he just got banned. For, he just got banned. And it's just so anything that can return... Scott Ritter and any other dissenting voice would be a wonderful thing, whether that's the Elon Musk or but, but anybody else. To be, to be a little more pointed, do you think Elon Musk is it? I mean, I, I talked about this with, with uh, Glenn the other day because he was talking about it on Wednesday or Thursday afternoon, I think right after it happened, and he had a call in. And, you know, he said the same things you just said, and I completely agree with those points like anything that doesn't start censoring people that have dissenting opinions is like is for the better and i support it as well um but is elon musk the thing and the thing i kind of said to glenn and i want to throw here and then you said you needed to run so i'll kind of make this my last thing even though i could talk to you forever and ask you like seventeen thousand more questions but um when has an oligarch been our savior for, you know, uh, free speech? And, you know, recall a couple of years ago when Abel Morales was pushed out in Bolivia. He's like, we're the U.S., we coup whoever we want. You know, he's, he's not the most democratic dude. And he is talking about free speech, but do we believe him? And, like, as the wealthiest person in the world, is, is he a believable figure? I'll leave it at that. Look, to all fair questions, I have no idea. I don't know what's in the guy's heart. I don't know too much about him, to be honest with you. But I think uh, the fact that so – I mean, look, what has me encouraged is is how many uh, – whatever you want to call them, shit libs or just liberals were freaked out at the prospect of him buying Twitter. And they seem concerned that, that – uh, they seem concerned that he was going to restore free speech. And so their anxiety to me is a source of hope. That's that's what I can say about that. They were they were really upset that the content moderation was going to happen. <laughs> exactly, and, and that's what has me optimistic. So if these people who insist on censoring dissenting views are nervous, then that to me is a cause for optimism. But you know, of course, I agree yeah. on that. Yeah. Again, happy Sunday, Aaron. Uh, any highlights that you want to push out before you? Uh, do your show in the morning and, and your call in tomorrow morning? Any like any stelter clips or, or uh, <laughs> well, I, well yeah, uh, you'll have to tune in to Monday morning uh, to, to see we'll all, the, all the goodness that occurred today on a Sunday news show. Yes. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning, that's Monday morning on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern. Katie Halper and I are live for Monday morning. And then right after that, at 11 a.m. Eastern, we're here on call in. You can search for Useful Idiots if you want to tune in to catch that. And that's it for today's show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's great to see everyone showing up. Thanks for all your questions, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.